I usually turn this on during the children's story and I forgot all about it. There, that's better. All right. Um, can I get a couple people to help me pass some things out here? Oi. <coughs> Thank you. Give one of those to each person. And um, there might be some pencils in the back, in the back room, or some pens, usually up in the cabinet straight ahead of you, Kyle. And then people can, you can raise your hand if you need a pen. Yes, I'm hobbling today. Just in case you're wondering why I'm walking funny. I twisted my knee last night. So, but it's getting better, so that's the good thing. God made us to recover. And a beautiful thing? Yep, it is. We're going to start with a child dedication here this morning. And if you want to come make your way up front, that would be great. You can come, grandmas, if you want. If you don't want, that's okay. I get it. Come on over this way. The distraction of passing stuff's out from a celebration. I had asked Craig and Shay to provide me a text that was special to them concerning Hannah. So they did, and, and I was looking at that text, and I realized that um, it's in a context, that text. And it's found there as Paul is talking to the Colossians in chapter 3. And I'm going to start back a few verses earlier than the one you chose. And it says this, Paul tells the Colossians, he says, having put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also 
do ye? And above all these, put on, the King James says charity, but it's the Greek word agape, which is love. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Now he's saying that to the church at large. And that is how we should all be towards each other. Amen? Right? And then there's the next verse, which is verse 16, which is the one you chose. And you want this really to be more than just a verse, but to be a prayer. And more than just a prayer, to be a life for your daughter. Amen? And it reads this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Amen? What a beautiful text. How many of us would like that to be the text of our own lives and the lives of our children and those around us that we have influence over, right? And the reason why I backed up is because I realized that for this charge, for, for this, these principles here in verse 16 to, to be a reality in your daughter's life, having been a father, I realized that they needed first to be a reality in my life. All the way back there to verse 10, where I started reading, right? That that those principles would be more than just something I'm reading from, from the word, more than things that I'm just encouraging others to live by, but things that were principles of life that were mine. Amen? And principles of life of the people that I hang out with and who strongly influence me and, and the life of my family. And I believe you've chosen wisely to have friends of people who will sh sharpen you and, and you them. And this morning as we've, as we've gathered here to, to dedicate little Hannah, it's not just to dedicate her to the Lord, but also to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. Amen? And that these things, these things, these principles of God, would be those things that, that are settled in our hearts and our minds and that we're modeling and we're teaching and we're sharing all the time. Amen? And this is the prayer of dedication for your little daughter this morning, that she would see in all of us and in you the Lord Jesus Christ abiding in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you for this precious little child. And Lord, we lift her up before you. And we dedicate her to you that the words that we've read this morning would be those that your Holy Spirit would make to abound in her heart and in her life. And Lord, we lift up this family before you in dedication as well. 
that those principles would be the words on their lips and the actions of their hands. And Lord, that they would rear both of these children, but little Hannah today, up before you with Jesus always abiding and living out through them. In whose name we pray. Amen. warm in here, isn't it? You're not warm? Oh, I'm warm. That's okay, though. So, this morning we're going to begin a journey, a series, and um, there's not much of a mystery to the series. There's a title up there in front of you that says, That Man of Sin. Right? And you see that it's packaged with some pictures. Right? And the truth is, is that all of us as Seventh-day Adventists, if you've ever been to a Revelation or Daniel seminar, right? You know who that man of sin is. You've been told over and over and over again, and you've probably seen some of the proof texts that prove that. And you might even be able to quote some of them, maybe. Right? Well, as I was, uh, I've been watching some YouTubes here and there, and, and I looked to see what kinds of things are popular, I began realizing that one of the most popular themes in YouTubes today from a Christian nature and, and, and the world in which we're living is this idea of the Antichrist. There are lots and lots of web pages that are dedicated to telling you who the Antichrist is. I've yet to find one that has it right. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Now, you might say, well, that's kind of a boastful claim. You Adventists seem to think you have it right. And that is a good question, isn't it? Do we have it right? Do you know if we have it right? And the truth is, is that most of us including me, until just recently, have never sought to flush the whole thing out on our own. If you've been to a Revelation seminar, you've seen some of the proof texts, but I guarantee you, you've never seen them all. And why is it important to see them all? To have all of the facts. Right? Okay, now I chose a slide, and the slide has no surprise. So by the time we're done with this series, you will not 
be told that the Antichrist is anyone different than what you already know. Okay? So this is not about the conclusion. It's about the journey. That's what it's about. It's about the journey. A journey that I had never been on fully. And as I started digging, I started finding out, wow, there are far more clues to who this is than I ever imagined. In fact, you've got a piece of paper sitting there in front of you. What, what's the greatest number there on, on the bottom of that page? What is it? Twelve? Twelve, just in this passage alone. We also know that the man, that man of sin, right, is also from Daniel chapter 7. What, what entity from Daniel chapter 7? The little, the little horn, right? And then we also know that in Daniel chapter 11, 12-ish, there are these kings of the north and kings of the... And there's discussions about who's who there and so on and so forth, right? And then we also know that in the book of Revelation, particularly in 13, there's this composite beast... And then later on in chapter 16 and 17, there's this great harlot, all of whom have clues as to who is who. Now, how do we know that maybe that man of sin is the little horn, that that little horn may be the king of the north, that that king of the north may likely be the composite beast, that that composite beast might likely be the harlot of how would we know that? Because as we dig out clues, we find that there are clues that are the same from one to the other to the other. So today we start a journey. And that journey is going to begin not just there in 2 Thessalonians first. We're going to start with some principles. Principle Number one, principle number one. You see that little yellow pencil up there in the corner? If you see that yellow pencil on a slide, that means this is in your notes. You see the words that are in yellow, private interpretation, moved in Holy Spirit? Those words are the words for filling in the blank. Okay? So question number one, and maybe number two, right there on the front of your paper, and it's going to tell you, maybe it's not number one. It's, I don't know that it has a number next to it, does it? Maybe it does. No, it does not. This says principle number one. All right. So principle number one, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any what? Private interpretation. How much Scripture is of private interpretation? None. No Prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Right? Here's why. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were what? Moved by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spoke as they were what? 
moved by the Holy Spirit. When we're looking at prophecy, we realize that it's not a private interpretation. Peter didn't just make it up. Paul didn't just make it up. Daniel didn't just make it up, right? They were moved by the Holy Spirit to write those things, right? That's principle number one. Principle number two, and there are other principles other than these. Principle number two, Paul says to the young preacher Timothy, he says this, be diligent. Be what? Diligent. That means to make an effort, to be prompt, to be earnest, to endeavor, labor. Be diligent, Timothy, to present who? Yourself. This principle isn't just for Timothy. This principle is for us. We are to be diligent. We live in a time in earth's history where we have more tools available to us than any other time in history. Any other time in history. You can punch a couple buttons on your phone and find out more information than they could have found out looking through volumes of books in Ellen White's day. And yet, what's interesting to me, while we have more availability, we seem to be less informed. Isn't that interesting? Many of us have been to seminar after seminar after seminar, and yet when quizzed, we can't answer the most basic of questions. Why is that? He tells us that we are to be diligent to present ourselves approved. That word, dokimos, is used for men who are honest and upright and true. Present yourself to be honest and upright and true to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Why? Because you have rightly divided the word of truth. What does it mean to rightly divide the word of truth? It Obviously, if you can rightly divide the word, you can wrongly divide the word. Amen? Personally, I would not want to be among those who are wrongly dividing the word. Isn't that right? Principle number three. Here it is. Isaiah 28. It says this. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? That's a wonderful question, isn't it? Look what he says. Those just weaned from milk. We are not to be on milk. We're to be on the meat of the word. We're not to be infants in our faith. We're to be growing up evermore. 
Amen? We're to be eating meat. Those who have just been weaned from milk, for precept must be upon what? Precept. Precept upon precept. Precept. That word is also can be interpreted as command. Command must be upon command. Command upon command. And then this word, line. You see that word? You know what that means? Here's what it means. It means a measuring stick or a measuring cord. Something that you use to measure something out. In other words, what do we call that? A ruler. You get it? So command must be upon command, and command upon command, and measurement ruler must be upon ruler, and ruler upon ruler, here a little, there a little. We are to be measuring out the scriptures, measuring out our faith, measuring out our understanding, so that we have the things added up, the the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, and things are properly understood. Just three principles. Now, we talked a minute ago about this word that is tossed around a lot that so many people seem to worry about, and that is this guy called the Antichrist. Have you heard people talk about it? The Antichrist. The Greek word is really hard to kind of figure out. It's antichristos. Simply means what? What does anti mean? Against. That's what it means. It means against Christ. Now you'll notice that some of them, this one particular, the first one, it's capitalized. The next one's italicized. That means it's supplied. And then the third one has a small a. The, the, the first one has a the in front of it, and thus it's capitalized. The second one, he is, but it doesn't have a the in front of it. Now, that's interesting, because if you look at the Greek, all of them have the article. So all of them should have a the in front of them, and thus all of them can be capitalized. You get it? But on the context, based on the context, they're saying, well, maybe this is talking about the Antichrist, Or maybe it's just talking about a Antichrist. What's the difference? Well, a Antichrist is anyone who's just what? Against Christ. Some of you may know some Antichrist. You understand what I'm saying? Look what it says. Little children, it is the what? The last hours. As you have heard that the, the Antichrist is coming, and even now many, what? Antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. When's John writing this? Do you know? It's around 90 A.D., 90 A.D. When was the temple destroyed? So 20 years after the temple's destroyed, 
And he's writing this before he ends up on the island of Patmos. You get it? Now, if you remember, John himself had sat with Jesus. And they had looked at the temple, and they said, Look at this beautiful building. Isn't it spectacular? And Jesus had said to them, Not one stone shall be left upon another till all is torn down. It took 40 years for that to happen. But now it's 20 years in the past. John must be sitting here thinking, Jesus has to be coming soon. Jesus said the temple would have to be destroyed, and it is destroyed. You get it? Now look at what verse 22 says. The second place at Antichrist, which you notice the number up there in the top right-hand corner, says that Antichrist is only found five times in the Bible. And it's all by John in his epistle. And he says this, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is what? Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Who is the Antichrist? He who denies what? The Father and the Son. The next couple places, here it is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come into flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of what? The Antichrist. What is the spirit of the Antichrist? Those who confess what? Jesus is not coming to flesh, and they deny the Father and the Son. That's the Antichrist. You know any Antichrist? I think we know people who deny the Father and the Son. We deny that Jesus is coming to flesh, right? That God doesn't exist, right? Or that Jesus wasn't his Son, or what have you, right? We know people like that. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Who would be the greatest Antichrist then? Satan would be the greatest Antichrist. Right? He's the chief Antichrist, but there are others. Right? This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now already is in the world. Who's in the world? The Antichrist or the spirit of Antichrist? the spirit of Antichrist. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and, and what? An Antichrist. Now, if that's all of the passages where the five references to the word Antichrist are used, can you gather anything from those passages about who the Antichrist is other than the fact that he denies the Father and the Son? Is there any other characteristics besides what we just highlighted? Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. And he does come from Ammon. You get it? So let's go flush this out by starting our journey in 2 Thessalonians. We're going to start there, 2 Thessalonians. So here, here's some things. Is coming, right? There's just kind of a synopsis and that he was a liar, a deceiver, non-confessor, and he denies the Father and the Son, right?
He came from among us and went out among us, from among us. Right? And those passages will be important. We'll come around to those later. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul talking about this? Someone, obviously, in Thessalonica was telling this story that Jesus had already come. Isn't that interesting? Who would say such a thing? Is there anyone in our modern day that says stuff like this? That Jesus has already come? Who's that? Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses say that. That Jesus has already come, you just can't see him. He's in spirit form, and you can't see him. Why do they say such a silly thing? It's because they went from setting a date to setting a date to setting dates to setting dates to setting dates to setting dates. And after a while, when you set a date and it doesn't happen, and you set a date and it doesn't happen, you set a date and another happened, you start to lose some credibility. Right? So eventually you have to come up with an excuse as to why we set a date, but it didn't happen. Oh, that's because he actually, he did come. He's just here and you can't see him. Interesting, huh? But somebody had told a similar story back there to the Thessalonians. They told this story and they were all up in arms. They were like, wait a minute, did the rapture already happen? And we've been left behind. You get it? And Paul's saying, all right, chill. Let me give you some principles. He says this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in your minds or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us or through the, uh, as though the day of Christ had already come. Don't worry about it. Don't be shaken. And he says this, let no man, what? Deceive you. Let what? No man deceive you by any means. I think that those words are as apropos today as they were then. You know why? And maybe even more so. Because if you've been paying attention to other sermons that we've had recently, we talked about the fact that in these last days, the Bible warns us that there is going to be a mystery of iniquity and that that mystery of iniquity, as it, as it unfolds in front of people's eyes, this is going to be so convincing that the whole world is actually going to go after it. And the Bible tells us that if those days were not shortened, even the most elect would be lost if it were possible. We can't just sit back on our laurels as we're watching all of the stuff that's happening in the world right now and think, I'm just going to, I've got, I've got at least five seminar notches in my seminar belt. 
So I'm not going to be deceived. Those principles that we talked about earlier is that study to show not Doug Batchelor approved, study to show not Pastor Doe approved, study to show thyself approved. We need to be in the Word. We have the Word available to us in our own language, in multiple forms. We have availabilities to lexicons and concordances and to all kinds of things. And there's no reason why we can't be seeking out to know the truth for ourselves. Because the truth is, The greatest deception is not going to happen in the world. The greatest deception is going to happen in the church. You understand that, right? The people who are going to be the most deceived are going to be the ones in the church. Everyone's going to be deceived, I'm not saying that. But the people in the church are going to be the ones that are most deceived. And I'm going to posit that the people who are most deceived are going to be the ones who were deceived by those who professed to be telling them the truth when it was actually a lie. You agree with that? And if we were to ask the simple little question, why will they believe a lie? What's that? Because they don't love the truth. To love the truth is to seek the truth. To seek the truth is to find the truth. To find the truth is to know the truth. Amen? To love the truth is to seek the truth. To seek the truth is to find the truth. To find the truth is to know the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? The greatest deception is going to take place among the church, where they will go after the spirit of Antichrist, thinking that they're going after what? Christ himself. How did they end up in that state? One, because they didn't love the truth. Number two, they had false shepherds. You get it? Question, which am I? Do you understand that? False shepherds. Do you get it? How do we identify false shepherds? By comparing line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, amen? Okay. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, said Paul, except there come a what? A falling away. The Greek word is apostasia. An apostasy. There's going to be an apostasy. There's going to be a falling away. An apostasy against what? 
what would the apostasy be against? Against the truth. A falling away. Paul says there's going to be a falling away from the truth. Now let's ask the question. Who would be falling away from the truth? Those who what? Who once believed and knew the truth. Right? You can't fall away from something you don't know. There's going to be a falling away from the truth, an apostasy, right? First, and then that man of sin. What? That man of sin. Sin, of course, is harmatia, which means missing the mark. That man of sin will be what? Revealed. Who is that man? He is the son of Apollia. You ever heard this Apollyon? Right? He is the son of perdition. Jesus warned us in Mark chapter 13 that false Christ and false prophets would arise and they would, remember this, we talked about this a few weeks ago, show signs and wonders. How convincing are those signs and wonders going to be? overwhelmingly, to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Note those who cause divisions and offenses, Paul tells the Romans, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, and by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. For such, he says in 2 Corinthians, are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. 2 Peter says this, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Do not let yourself be deceived by anyone. You've heard this example before, right? False $20 bills. It's really popular to print a $20 bill, right? And, and to fake that. <coughs> So a bank teller, besides before the little markers that they have today came out, right? But a bank teller, if they wanted them to be able to identify a $20 bill, you know what they did? They didn't show them all the false $20. They showed them the true. And they got them to study the true with such detail that they could always tell the false one from the true. You come to know the truth then the deception manifests itself in front of you, right? You don't have to study all of the deceptions. You study the truth. And then the deception manifests itself in front of you. Let's keep going. Next verse. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Who opposes and does what? Exalts himself. That man of sin, the son of perdition, is going to be revealed. What does he do? He opposes and he exalts himself above all that is called God. Now, who did that? 
Lucifer, I shall ascend even onto the throne of God. You see that? Who is this man of sin being inspired by? His father, the devil. Right? He's the son of perdition. His father's inspired him. He has the same character. He opposes, he exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Deception. Deception. It's often accompanied by lies. Isn't that right? And even as little kids, we figured out that the best lies were those that were mostly true. Right? The devil doesn't cloak his deceptions in obvious error. He makes it look like it's true. And he gets you to believe that it is true. Because it might be mostly true. But you have to be able to see the fine little nuances. Right? And this person opposes and exalts himself, and yet we know that most of the world will go after him. Why is that? Because the world will think that it is true. Do you get that? While at the same exact time, how could Christians think that it's true while he opposes and exalts himself above which, that which is called God? Isn't that interesting? We have to see the carefulness of this. Sometimes we might think, Oh, oh, I would definitely know if somebody was opposing and exalting themselves above all that is called God. Not if the whole entire world looks and sees it as being the truth when it's actually a lie. Isn't that true? If you were to say today the word Christian Most of the world, when you say that word, thinks of whom? The universal church. Does it not? We might not, because we know certain things, but most of the world thinks of the universal church as that representation of Christianity and of Christ. They have been deceived. The devil is the great chameleon. He has cloaked error and falsehood in the robe of sanctity. You get it? 
so that all the world would be deceived and all the world would marvel and follow after the beast. He opposes and he exalts himself above all that is called God. And did not Satan himself cloak himself in the disguise? And does not the Bible tell us that that's exactly how he presents himself? He presents himself as an angel of light. He even sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So here's your piece of paper there in front of you. There's number one. He proceeds from the second coming of Christ. He's associated with the falling away. He identified, his identity would be revealed first. Also called the son of perdition. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is God. He sits as God in the temple of God and he proclaims that he is God. All of these are clear identifying characteristics. Let me ask you a question. If we were to look in prophecy and we were to ask ourselves, which entity or which person, which character is spoken of the most in prophecy and has the most clues in terms of its identification or his identification? Which entity or person in prophecy is spoken of the most, and thus there are more prophecies identifying the characteristics of this particular person than any other entity spoken of in prophecy? What would the answer be? Jesus, of course. Isn't that right? Jesus. In fact, there are some 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled just in his first coming. And there are prophecies, I don't know how many, but there are still a number of prophecies still yet to be fulfilled at his second coming. Is that true? Right? Why did God give us 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming? 300 specific characteristics. Where he would be born, to whom he would be born, when he would be born, and that he'd even be in a manger. What's that? That we might clearly identify him. That we wouldn't be deceived and think that somebody else. Did you get that? Now, if there are prophecies about where and when and how and to whom, how many of those would actually have to be fulfilled for us to know that it indeed was the Messiah? All of them? Does that make sense? All of them. And thus, if we went through the who and the what and the where and the when and the how, and we found out that Jesus actually fulfilled all of them, then we would know indeed that Jesus was what? If he was truly despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, right? We esteemed him smitten, right? He was led as a lamb to the slot. God gave us all of those. Now, if you were to ask yourself the question, out of all of the prophecies and all the who's, what's, and where's, who is second? Satan. 
the Antichrist in particular, the man of sin, right? Why? God wants us to know who this is. You understand? Now thus far, here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's why we're doing this. I thought, I'm going to go through this and I'm going to find hmm, 20, 30, right? There are 12 right here. In Daniel 7 and 8, there's an additional 23 to 24. In Daniel 9 through 11, there's another dozen. In Revelation 13, there's a dozen more. In Revelation 17, 16 and 17, there's a dozen more. Some of them overlap each other. You get it? That's how we know one is related to the other is related to the other is related to the other. That's how we know, right? By the ones that they have in common. So far, I've come up with about 60 standalone identifying marks. Now, some of those identifying marks concerning the Messiah have yet to be fulfilled because they concern his second coming, right? Some of the identifying marks concerning this character are yet to be fulfilled, fulfilled because it identifies these things happen when Christ comes, like him being destroyed in the lake of fire or whatever. You get it? So then that leaves you with a certain number that have already been fulfilled. And we should be able to go through there. Now, here's a, here's a common argument. Here's why I'm saying this to you. Ready? There's a common argument out there online concerning this one identifying mark of the Antichrist that's very, very popular. And this identifying mark, you might know what it's called. It's called the mark of the beast. And associating with the mark of the beast, there is a what? A number. And that number is what? 666. We got a wise audience, right? It's 666. And then here's what they'll say out there. They'll say, you know what? Nero adds up to 666. And so does Ronald Reagan. Now, in the examples, I've heard this several times repeated, and never did any of them ever say, and so does the Pope. Nero, Ronald Reagan, this other person, this person, that person, this person, right? And guess what? Here's what they're saying. They say, all of these add up, so how can we possibly know who the Antichrist is? Do you get that? Because if Ronald Reagan adds up to 666 and Nero, well then how, do you get it? Now, if one of those identifying marks were this, he came up among the ten. If another one was, he plucked three up by the roots. Did Ronald Reagan come up among the ten? Did he pluck three up by the roots? Do you get it? It isn't. Even if we toss the 666 out, there are still 59. You get it? It's all of them, not some of them. Now, what if the Pope actually equaled the others plus 
666. Do you get it? Then we'd kind of know, wouldn't we? Let's continue with Thessalonians here. Just a few more slides. Do you not remember, asked Paul, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, somebody had come into their midst after Paul had already been there. Paul was there, and he told them the truth. But somebody else came along afterwards and told them lies and got them all fired and worked up. How could he possibly come in afterwards and tell them lies and get them all fired and worked up? You know why? Number one, obviously they'd forgotten the truth that Paul had told them. Right? Or they considered the other person to be more knowledgeable than Paul. Or more informed or more whatever, grounded or whatever you want to say, right? Does that happen in our world today? It certainly does. Choose your favorite preacher. You get it? This person is telling me what I want to hear. They're telling me what I want to believe. That's not to be our standard, brothers and sisters. The standard is to be that we are studying for our own. Now, listen to me. I agree that not all of us are starting at the same place, that we all have the same aptitude. You get that? We don't necessarily all understand the same. I get that. But so does God. Amen? God doesn't promise that we all have the same aptitude. God promises that if you seek, you will find. That's what he promises. He's not looking for you to have the same abilities or even necessarily the same background. What he's looking for is that you are honestly searching after him. And when you're honestly searching after him, he will lead you. I know he will because he's done that to me lots of times. He'll lead you to the place where you will find and discover the truth. Because you want to know. That's the principle. Are you looking for knowing the truth? Or are you sitting back and saying, you know what, I'd really like to do that tonight, but America's Got Talent is on. We're living in times where America got talent, or anything like that, it's not going to be what keeps us safe. It's designed to put us further to sleep. Do you not remember that when I was still among you, I told you these things? And now you know that what is restraining, that he may not 
that he may be revealed in his own time. So he's saying, look it, there's a restraint that's going on. There's something that's holding back the revealing, but in its own time, God is going to make it manifest. There's a whole bunch of speculation as to what it might have been. Maybe it was he didn't want to name Rome or whatever the deal was. Nobody knows for sure. For the mystery, the what? What's a mystery? What's a mystery? Something that's not readily obvious. Isn't that right? It's a mystery, but it's a mystery of anomos, not law. It's a mystery of lawlessness, and he's saying that that mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And the one who is restraining will do so until that restraint is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And what's going to happen to that lawless one? It says, whom the Lord will what? Consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, has Jesus come yet? He hasn't. Right? What's going to happen to that lawless one when Jesus comes? He's going to be consumed and destroyed. Amen? We know the devil's going to be consumed and destroyed. But the lawless one also. Now, we actually have to wait for this to pan itself out. Maybe it won't be long. Next. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to what? The workings of Satan. Surprise. Now look at what it says. With all what? Power. What kind of power does Satan have? Let me ask you a question. If you were to just take a stab If suddenly Adam and Eve were sitting here with us, who might you think was more intellectually superior? Them or you? And yet they were deceived. You understand that? They were deceived. And they knew the truth. And they knew God face to face. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage us. I'm saying it to say, don't think that you're smarter than the devil. Because you're not. You're not smarter than the devil. If he, if he wild them, he'll wild you. You get it? Our safety is in a personal knowledge and relationship with our shepherd and our protector. That's where it is. You see? Look at this. The coming of the lawlessness is according to the working of Satan with all power, not most power, not some power, all power, signs and what? Lying wonders. 
What's the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that the whole entire world is going to marvel and follow after the beast. Why? Because of power and signs and lying wonders. And with all, what's it say? Unrighteous deceptions. Isn't that interesting? Among those who perish, here we go, Keith, because they did not receive the what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. Why? Because they did not receive. Does that mean that it was available to them? It was available to them, but they refused to accept it, right? What was it that they didn't receive? A love of the truth. To love the truth is to seek the truth. To seek the truth is to find the truth. To find the truth is to have the truth. Amen? And then to have the truth is to be saved. Right? How many people have told you, oh, but they love the Lord? Really? Do they love the truth? Well, no. Do they seek the truth? Oh, no, but they love the Lord. I'm not trying to be critical. I just find that kind of th- th- those two definitions sort of be at odds with each other, and I find them kind of hard to swallow. To love the Lord is to seek the Lord. Right? Jesus tells us that in the last days there are going to be lots of people who come to him and say, but Lord, I loved you. He's going to say, I don't know who you are. Isn't that right? And with all unrighteous deceptions among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, what reason? This reason, what reason? Because they did not what? Receive a love of the truth. Because they did not receive a love of the truth, get this straight, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Why is he sending them strong delusion? Because they did not receive a love of the truth. Did you get it? Example, Pharaoh. Did God harden his heart? Before or after? Now, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would resist, even though all those plagues were poured out, so that God's ultimate desire of delivering his people from Egypt might be accomplished. Isn't that true? Will God hold Pharaoh accountable for the hardening of the heart that God himself did to Pharaoh? Would that be just? No. It wouldn't be just to hold him accountable for what God himself did to him. He's held accountable for the hardness of the heart that existed before God hardened his heart 
to accomplish his task. You see that? Because Pharaoh did not receive a love of the truth. So when it came to the place where God was ready to deliver his people, he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would resist, so that, but Pharaoh had already made that choice. And thus, when God comes to this place where he will send strong delusion that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness, it's because before that day came, they had already not received a love of the truth. What does that tell you? There is a place where probation closes. They did not receive a love of the truth. Probation closes. God sends strong delusion that they might believe a lie and that they'd be condemned who did not believe the truth, but rather they had pleasure where? In unrighteousness. There we go. Here's the second half. Also called the lawless one. Will be consumed and destroyed at Christ's coming. His coming is according to the workings of Satan. He utilizes all power, song, lying wonders, and unrighteous deceptions. And he deceives those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What's Paul saying? Let no one deceive you by any means. That day is not going to come except there's a, an apostasy first, a falling away. And that man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, if indeed we are correct, if line upon line and precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, has revealed that that man of sin is the little horn, that that little horn is the king of the north, that that king of the north is the composite beast of Revelation 13, that that composite beast is the harlot. And if there's enough evidence already that the man of sin has been what? Revealed. and that day will not come first until that happens, then we're sitting between the revelation of who the man of sin is and the second coming of Christ. A period that the Bible tells us will be a time of great deception with all power and lying wonders so that all the world would be deceived and follow after the beast. Brothers and sisters, this is an earnest call to myself, to all of us, that we need to start seeking after God in your own capacity as the Holy Spirit impresses you, so that we will not be found among those 
who are deceived by any means. Amen? By that man of sin. Let's sing a closing song. Number 223. Let's stand for our closing hymn, number 223, Crown Him with Many Crowns. <laughs>